Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. Welcome to Talking to Teens. This is the podcast where we talk not to teens, we talk to people about talking to teens. And this is our 200th episode. In this special episode, we're going to listen to some of the highlights of the show so far. First, Ned Johnson and William Sticksrude are going to tell us about why it's important sometimes to offer amnesty to our children. I was talking with one of my childhood friends who has four kids and, and the, the youngest daughter was just a pain in the ass for, for all through high school. It was just all through high school. They were just constantly testing limits, breaking boundaries, breaking yeah. rules, lying to her parents. He said, we just had a terrible relationship. There's just a complete lack of trust. We were trying to clamp down on her and, and she'd find a way to, to, to sneak out or whatever. He told me the story that one night in her senior year of high school, that the mother was out of state doing something. My friend had a church meeting. And so he gets a call while he's at the meeting from a neighbor who says, you know, there's 20 kids, your, your daughter and 20 of her friends are at your house. They're all drinking. And so when the meeting's over, he comes home and, and the kids must have gotten wind of it because they'd all cleared out they'd cleared uh. up the place. And he confronts his daughter and she says, there's no part. Are you saying that John across the street lied? Yeah, he must have because there are no kids here. So my friend calls the neighbor again, and the neighbor's wife is a therapist. And he says, what should I do? We've taken away everything kind of idea. Yeah. He says, offer her amnesty. Tell her that whatever she did, it's like it never happened. And so my friend goes to her daughter and says that if I was talking to my parents and lying just straight to their face, that I'd probably feel guilty at some level. So I imagine that you're feeling a little guilty. And I'm not going to pile on. So I'm just going to want you to know that whatever, whatever happened tonight, you, you have amnesty. It's like it never happened. And he went to bed. And later that night, she came and knocked on his door and came to the bedroom and said, I had a party. And I, really, I feel really terrible about lying to you. And he said that the temperature in their house increased by 30 degrees. Maybe it was that, that cold tension, you know, can't stand to be just uh, the warmth of their relationship. He said it was, it was completely a game-changing thing. Mm. Not to do the knee-jerk, we're going to punish you for this. And what he said later, what he told me later was that I don't want to drink. Drinking's not good for the teenage brain. But, you know, I, I went to parties and drank sometimes. It, it, I wasn't so concerned about that. I was concerned about just the terrible relationship. Yeah. And he pri right. prior, by prioritizing the relationship, it was a complete game changer. He said that we started to communicate more openly, started to be, have, actually have fun together, started to trust each other more. And her parole officer says she's doing really good. No, I, I was going to make that <laughs> up, but... <laughs> The next episode we're going to visit in on is with Michelle Mitchell. She's going to talk to us about how the brain changes in teenagers. So like we talked about before, whereas kids feel guilty for leaving that little child behind, we want them to know that actually their parents are expecting there's times where they're going to have different ideas and going to push back a bit more. And that they're probably, they might start, you know, sleeping in later and finding organizing themselves a little bit difficult. And they might not, but it's possible. And no matter what changes they go through, their parents are there kind of to fill those little gaps. And mm. I like to explain it to teenagers, I mean, to tweens like this, is when their brain starts going offline a little bit and that limbic system becomes turbocharged and it starts to get... Um, in charge of making decisions a lot more, your parents are going to look over and start freaking out sometimes. And they're going to say, there's no one sitting where the prefrontal cortex committee of management is supposed to be. And during those moments where parents look over and start to freak out, they're going to start to want to come and fill the gaps. And they're going to be saying things like, it's time to get off that phone now. It's time to go, you know, to bed. Um, have you brushed your teeth? And they're going to be doing all those things that you'll be able to do all by yourself when you get older. Now, it's so cute to watch them go, 
yeah, that's me. My mum's already doing that. You know, my that that's me. Because they're actually trying to identify with being grown up. And mm. even though it's going to get more intense, <laughs> they don't realise that yet. We want to give them that understanding that their parents sort of walking in that space in their lives is there to partner with and to help them with the journey. And now let's listen to a piece from the interview with Brooklyn Rainey. She's going to tell us an interesting anecdote about her son who used to vape and how he refused the suggestions that his father gave him, but accepted the very same suggestion from the cool drum teacher. Does that mean there's just no hope for parents to get messages <laughs> through or what? I think that you're hitting on exactly my case for the trusted adult. So there is lots of research out there that says, you know, a relationship with one trusted adult will change the future of a child. So they will be able to adapt and overcome adversity versus bearing lifelong scars. The story you're referring to was the best example of this ever and happened <laughs> right in front of my eyes. When after this vape incident with my son, you know, I really, we, of course, our knee-jerk reaction is like, take away the phone, take away this, you're take grounded, away that, take away drum lessons, you're locked again. in now. Yeah, you're never, right. yeah exactly. The fact that there was daylight again. Anything know. fun. Yeah. 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 So knee-jerk reaction. And then I told, I called this drum teacher and I said, you know, I'm going to have to pull him from drums, got in trouble. And I kind of, you know, he, drum teacher almost served as like a support for me in that moment mm. as I'm telling him everything that's going on. And he said, you know what, I, if you trust me, like I'd really, why don't we double the session this week? Because I think that, you know, through drums, we can have a bigger conversation. And, and I've had my own storied past and I think I have something to offer. And I was like, Yes, I'm like in the middle of writing this book. I'm like, oh my gosh, here, like he's totally embracing this relationship and stepping mm. up. And so had to negotiate that with my husband. Like, it's not a reward. It's it's more of like education. Like, let's let's dive into this. So took him to that session. He comes back from that session. We're having dinner. We're chatting about it. And my son is like, you know, he just he said something like really profound to me. Like I really connected with it. It was kind of like you know, is a vape going to kill me today? No, but if I make this choice to be this kid that sneaks a vape and, and goes to the bathroom with other kids who are vaping, and then those kids become my friends, and then then it leads to something else. And, you know, I've kind of like chosen my friend group and who surrounds me. And that's like the biggest predictor of my of my future is like who surrounds me. And so this one vape really represents sort of like a path to people and those people represent my future path. And I could see like steam coming out of my husband's ears and he like turning red and he's like holding his fork really because he honestly had said almost verbatim the exact same thing the night before. And of course my son was like, yeah, dad. Okay, dad. I hear you, dad. Yeah. I understand. Can I go now? Can I shower? Can I go to bed? And then of course, when the cool drum teacher says it, he hears it and comes back and regurgitated it in this way that like we really felt connected to. Yeah. And so again, knee-jerk reaction is for my husband to be like angry and upset that he didn't hear it from him. But like, what was the end goal? The end goal is that he heard it. Like where he heard it is not as important as the fact that he heard it. That understanding of like our job as parents right now, while he's in this like pull away liberation phase mm -hmm. is to surround him with drum teachers and coaches and theater directors and grandparents, other people who are willing to hold him accountable, but also love him and listen to him and provide their own context and their own stories and their own way of saying similar things to what we're trying to say. And now we're gonna to listen to Jake Teeny. Thanks to his background in persuasion psychology, he's gonna tell us something about how to get a teenager to do what's best for them. But what's a compelling argument? You know, usually things based on logic are very compelling. Sure. Um, yeah. And 
So there's often two ways you can present things for why you would do it. You could do it in terms of a promotion focus or a prevention focus. So a promotion Mm. focus is, hey, uh, you should study for this test so you can get an A. You know, that's a very promotion. You're focused on this benefit, this goal. Prevention focus is, hey, you should really study on this test so you don't get a D. Let me give uh, uh, expand on the promotion prevention for a second. Yeah. they looked at the study between like parents and children and they looked to see what kind of persuasive messages that the parents just naturally generate themselves. Sure. And people who tend to be promotion focused, who tend to think about all the positives they can gain, tend to generate promotion focused messages. All the parents who are prevention focused and think about all the losses that they're afraid they may have generate these kind of loss avoidance messages. Unfortunately, that doesn't always match with how the kids think about things. And so these parents are delivering promotion-focused messages to maybe prevention-minded children or prevention-focused messages to promotion-minded children, and, you know, it's not as effective. Now, in general, as we were kind of talking with the affirmations earlier, if you can frame it in terms of the rewards, it's going to be generally more successful. What's all this stuff about loss aversion, negativity bias, and how mm-hmm. the human brain is more wired to avoid loss than it is to – so, okay, so given that stuff, mm-hmm. why do you think it is that still framing it in terms of what you can gain is more effective than framing it in terms of what you stand to lose? Yeah, so I think a large part of that is when you frame it in terms of what you stand to lose, you're focusing on those negative emotions, you're focusing on guilt, anxiety, and these are all tacitly associated with explicit persuasion, pressure tactics. It feels more manipulative, right? That's what it's I was thinking very is you were saying that. Exactly. It just if someone's telling me, "Hey, if you don't do this, terrible things are going to happen to you." Mm-hmm. It just feels more like it's going to trigger reactants. Like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah right. that turtle stuff's going to happen to me? Oh, well, we'll see about that, right? Yeah. Uh, interesting, yeah. And so, you know, again, with the promotion focus, it's like, hey, this is what you stand to gain. You're free to do whatever you want, right? Again, eliminating that reactance. This is what you can gain. In terms of prevention, it's like, you will lose this if you don't do that, you know? And again, it's yeah. very commandy. Like, you have to do this. And nobody likes to be told what they have to do. No, no, especially teenagers. And now, Douglas Fields is going to talk to us about how the response to danger differs in the brains of male versus female children. Well, that's an interesting example of the differences in how the threat response, the circuitry involving the threat response in the brain differs in males and females. I saw this in Barcelona with my daughter, and this research comes from Larry Cahill of UC Irvine, who noticed that in response to sudden threats, activity shifts to the left hemisphere in females and to the right hemisphere in males. So back up a little bit. We have two brains, <laughs> believe it or not. And we have these two brains. It's you know bilaterally symmetrical. And if you think about it, you cannot be synthesizing, gestalt, you know, taking information and, and making generalizations. At the same time, you're doing the opposite thing of breaking down and analyzing, right? The reductionist right. approach. So we have the ability to switch between the left and right. And the left Cortex is more analytical, breaking down and analyzing rationally the situation. Uh, and uh, the right brain is, is putting together, synthesizing and getting the big picture. So as you and I are talking now, or you're going about in your everyday life, we're constantly switching between the left and right hemisphere. So we can do both things. Yeah. And that's very cool. But it turns out nobody knew expected, but in the face of a sudden threat, women tend to shift to the left hemisphere hmm. and men to the right. And why that is isn't clear. Dr. Cahill doesn't know either. It's just an observation. Okay. But I'll tell you, it's true. So when my daughter, Kelly, and I, and I left this part out of the story, but we were chased by this gang for two hours through Barcelona. We'd leave the sidewalk, run down the middle of the three-lane boulevards against traffic, trying to elude these people. It was like a spy movie. And I, you know, you're running in and out of stores, in the front, out the back, yeah. trying to elude these people. And 
it quickly became apparent that Kelly spotted the bad guys before I did. She was always the first to spot them. We're here in a you know huge crowd. Yeah. And it was so apparent that I kind of just left that to her. And so when you have, when you put these two things together, the male and female responses, you have a very powerful outcome. Mm. So here's what's going on. She's picking out all the details. She's finding these bad guys faces in the crowd. And I'm thinking the big picture things, you know, what am I going to do when I get these guys? How do you know, big strategies. Yeah, That's what I'm thinking. Right. She's getting, she's down in the weeds. And again, together is a great combination. Now he doesn't know why this happens, but here's something he suggests could be. And that's because in most vertebrates and certainly most mammals, in sex selection, it's the female who makes the decisions, right? No more important decision in life than, than mating. Yeah. And birds do it based on, you know, how well this other bird does a dance. What kind of plumage it is and yeah. all these little subtle clues about how good a parent that prospect is going to be. Yeah. And it's true for humans i mean women make the decision guys just audition you know right and and, and uh, profound outcome based on all this little information you know and whereas the guy is probably thinking a big picture you know, yeah she's gorgeous i'd love to be with her and she's thinking is this guy gonna take out the garbage if i you know <laughs> get a relationship with her is he gonna be a slouch and all this analytical stuff is going on in this very stressful situation yeah. in the female brain where the guy's thinking of big pictures. We don't know if that's the case, but it's certainly true that we have this different ability and it splits according to gender. Now we're listening to Wendy Bahari, who's going to tell us what schema therapy is. There's a certain number of emotional needs that go into healthy, well-adjusted development of an individual. And when those needs aren't adequately met, and they're, they're hard to get met, I mean, even the parent with the best of intentions doesn't necessarily adequately meet all the needs of their child because parenting's tough, right? So we say that when needs aren't met adequately, combined with the temperament of the child, um, schemas can form. And that means that if, if you grow up with this experience, I was invisible. I didn't get what I needed from my mother or my father or my my teachers. I felt like I wasn't seen. I felt like I didn't matter. Narcissists typically grow up with the experience of feeling that there's nothing about just being that's really valuable. It's what they do. It's about performance. It's about competition. It's about achievement. It's about being beautiful, handsome, special, wonderful, the best, extraordinary. So there's a lot of emphasis placed on performance. There's a lot of emphasis placed on, you know, ease of life, low frustration tolerance, being spoiled in some cases, um, a kind of learned dependency. And so they feel entitled to demand things, to feel superior to other people, to break the rules, to have privileges. And a lot of that comes from their background um, and the way that, you know, with messages they were given, the way they were taught, the influences that were in front of them, and the lack of unconditional love. So schema therapy tries to identify what those, not only the schemas are, because there's 18 early maladaptive schemas, but what the triggers are. What are the conditions in your life now that activate those old life themes that live in your memory because it's natural and normal and part of being human and also activate reactions that you might have had when you were very little when there was little survival power so you did the best you could but you're doing them still as an adult as if you don't have any other choices. So a parent of a teen who gets triggered when the teenager is acting unruly or is, is pouty or is upset or is whining or doing all the things teenagers might do the parent of the teen who gets triggered back to a time and place in their life without even realizing it, because it's so behind the scenes, may react in ways that their parents did, that they did as a child. They may actually, to get back to narcissism, work too quick, too fast to take the teen out of distress, so much so that the child doesn't learn how to tolerate frustration. And it's one of the hallmark features in narcissism. They can't tolerate not getting their own way, not being frustrated, not being uncomfortable. So I'm constantly urging parents, although 
it may be hard to resist the temptation to swoop in and make it all better, you know, give your kids a chance to muscle through. Let them be a little uncomfortable because that's good preparation for how the world works. It's preparation for life. But if you're triggered, it's tough to do that if your schemas get activated. Next, let's listen to what Beverly Daniel Tatum has to say about colorblindness. Isn't it better to just kind of not talk about race and just kind of, um, you know, just assume everybody kind of knows what's going on and just not really focus on it? Well, the trouble with not talking about it is when you've got a problem, and we do have a problem, if you have a problem and can't talk about it, you can't fix it. So we all have to be better at being able to have these conversations so we can really work toward real change. You talk about a father in here, and there's this uh, little scenario where he's telling you about when he picked his daughter up from school and asked her to point out her new friend, and she's trying to point out you know, her new friend from this group of girls on the playground, and it's like the one black girl in the group, but she doesn't mention anything about you know race. She's talking about what the girl's wearing and kind of like the backpack that she has and all these like other kind of like things, and the dad is you know telling you about this, and he's really proud you know because hey, that his daughter is colorblind. Then you say, I wondered if rather than a sign of colorblindness, it was a sign that she had learned not to be so impolite as to mention someone's race. Particularly white families have this idea that their children should be colorblind. And I think what they really mean is that they don't want their kids to be racist or they don't want their kids to be discriminatory. And of course, I want that too. <laughs> I mean, That's, you know, yeah, yeah. but to say you don't see somebody else's racial group membership or you don't see their identity is to erase a significant part of their experience. So you know, the daughter who might have been thinking it was impolite to say, oh, it was the black girl, is perhaps internalizing an idea that there's something wrong with being the black girl, yeah, you know, yeah. and that that message that, you know, it's so unpleasant that we shouldn't even mention it is problematic. You know, she should say, oh, look at, you know, I've got, you know, Susie, the black girl um, is easiest way to point out if She's the only one, right? That's the, right. That's, the, that's the quickest identifier. But also, you know, it's just, it's like saying the one with red hair. Now, Megan Moss is going to talk to us about porn in sex education. We are moving away from an abstinence-only approach in sex education because the studies show that it just doesn't work. And actually, if your goal is as a family or a parent to have your kid wait until they're married to have sex or have your kid wait until they're in college or in you know, a serious committed relationship to have sex, the best thing you can do is make sure they have comprehensive sex education because that actually requires a ton of vocabulary lots of skills and comfort with their own body and knowing how their body reacts and, you know, being able to say things like, you know, I'm cool with like oral sex or touching, or I'm cool with like kissing, yeah, right. but I'm not okay with like, or I'm not okay with oral sex. It's like, I'm okay with touching and making out or something. What but are like, your boundaries? Yeah, but but knowing them beforehand and maybe yeah, practicing how to advocate totally. for those in really difficult situations. You need skills. Yeah. Versus yeah. just saying yeah. like, don't do it because then what happens is they don't have skills to prepare for the situations that they will inevitably be in. And right. so when they get in those situations, they're not prepared with contraception. And then it also shows that actually for girls in particular, then they're more likely to have their first sexual experiences are sexual assault or, you know, unwanted experiences because they have no preparedness for those situations. But in terms of porn, so the analogy I sort of use and that I used in my TED talk is thinking about porn it as it is to sex as we would to think about how fast food is to you know eating and nutrition and so yeah. you know it's one of these things where you kind of just want to think about it. it's fast and easy and cheap but is it giving you what you want out of life if it's not impacting mm. your ability to be aroused without it can you masturbate without it do you feel comfortable talking about sex to another person? And do you feel like good about your body and yourself? 
these are all questions that you need to be asking yourself. And these are typically questions that we don't ask of ourselves until we're in our thirties or older, because, you know, nobody's ever talking to us about our sexual selves. That's an academic term that we use. And, and in my research is, is thinking about the sexual self. So how you are as a sexual being, how that integrates into your other identities and parts of life and is, is part of how you express yourself and is part of how you express like your love with somebody else. And, you know, and so porn can hinder that for some people. Porn can help some people with that. And so really figuring out what it's doing for yourself is important. And so one of the sort of the quick and funny analogies I use is that fast food one, just to kind of get people to think like, well, if, if ethically produced porn is like your local farm to table, you know, <laughs> restaurant it's where like everything is humanely raised and, and, and yeah, yeah, like people don't have access to that. And if you do, you're not, you're usually not able to do it all the time, but you want to have good sex that is healthy and can sustain a relationship and that is healthy and can sustain our culture. Now, let's listen to a segment from the episode with Peggy Orenstein. She's going to tell us how boys might want meaningful relationships too. There's a point in this book where you got a text from Nate and he's in school in Southern California and he's kind of texting you. He says, WTF is up with the hookup culture. He wrote, it's like an orgy here. Is that the way to live? Should I be investing in that or forming meaningful connections with women? And so then you are actually with someone else at that point, Wyatt. So you guys kind of talk about what would be the best way to respond. And, and then it says, you kind of, you sit, you don't tell us exactly what you say to him, but it was some sort of a kind of summary or something of what Wyatt says. And then he says, thank you. Really? Thank you. Exactly what I needed to hear. This is where my heart is. And I thought this exchange was really interesting for a couple of reasons. The one that he felt comfortable enough to like send you this text message. And that, you know, makes me wonder, well, how as a parent or an adult that's trying to act as a mentor figure, how can you be that approachable? And then to what you said or how you figured out kind of what to say that was what he needed to hear. Yeah. Well, you forgot the part where he sent me a heart emoji. Um, <laughs> oh, that's that right here. Is, and then he added a heart emoji. Yeah. Um, that actually is one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. I'm so glad that you pulled that scene out um, because what was wonderful about that was, yeah, I was, I was Skyping with one boy who had, you know, been heavily into hookup culture and then had sort of come through to the other side of that. And Nate texts in and he says what you said. And what I did was I asked Wyatt, the boy I was Skyping with and do and interviewing, what do you think I should say to him? And I read him the text and they had this conversation through me. I was not talking that I was texting, you know, what Wyatt was saying to him. And then he was saying, and we were going back and forth. And it was this incredible thing because yeah, it gave Nate what he needed. And I am still in touch with Nate. Um, I just was texting with him the other day. And I know that that conversation continued to affect him and he really did go into college he was a boy who really wanted to have connection and meaning in his personal relationships and he stuck with that um and i thought you know these guys are total strangers to one another they don't know each other's names they'll never meet and i'm a total stranger really you know they just know me because i'm writing a book um and the serendipity of them being able to have this conversation is so rare and yet it was so meaningful. And what, what could we do? What would it mean if we could create a situation where boys could have these conversations with them amongst themselves or trusted adults? And that's really at the heart, I think, of both Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex was that I wanted a book, books that, you know, that yes, parents could use to understand where teenagers are right now and all these issues, but also that guys or girls themselves could read Get them talking to hopefully about open it. up more meaningful dialogue. A hundred percent. And now we're going to listen to Esther Wojcicki, who's going to tell us about how we can use teenagers' interests to get them motivated and to avoid depression. You have a story about a student that was being disruptive in class, you know, unmotivated. He's called Caleb in the book. And what you decided to do was find out what he was really interested in. Everyone is interested in something, you say. 
Turns out he was interested in shoes, of all things. And that simple thing of encouraging his interest was a big turning point for him. He started showing up on time because he wanted to and started doing his work and wanting to talk to you. And I thought that was just such a cool example of how starting with what they're interested in and then you stayed in touch with him and you know he's not becoming a shoe designer or something right the things that teenagers are interested in aren't the things that they necessarily keep doing you know it's just a phase that they're going through or whatever but i think adults are worried that if they show an interest in the thing then it's like but i don't necessarily want them to be doing that or whatever but by just showing the interest i think it's that's just what teenagers need and they just want to you know kind of experiment with this thing I guess, how do you see past your vision for what you think they should be doing or what they should be doing differently and like actually find what they want or what their vision is for their life? So I'm really glad you brought up this example. Yeah, this is this is actually the key to the success of my journalism program and with all those publications and all those kids because a lot of kids you know, they come in unmotivated. And I think one of the reasons kids are not motivated is because they've heard no a lot. No, this isn't a good idea. No, don't do that. No, all the time. So a lot of no's. And so the this kid, Caleb, with the shoes, he was a, he's just a tip at this point, a typical ninth grader who just like, oh, I don't know what I want to be. First of all, my feet are growing all the time. And, you know, every day I look different and whatever. And yeah. the fact that I showed interest in him and I was interested in what he said he was interested in. Oh, my God, that made all the difference. Because then all of a sudden he wanted to talk to me. And I think that's the key for all teachers. If you get to know your students just a little bit and see what they're interested in. It's like a turning point. The, there's a study that was done just, I mean, within the last six months that asked students, how often did teachers ask them what they wanted to study? And the answer was never for 90% Zero. of the kids, never. Yeah. So in the journalism program, my thing is, so what do you want to write about? I don't care what you write about. Your interest, you get to write about whatever it is you are interested in writing about. And don't worry about what other people think is better. I want to know what you think is better. They could write about shoes. They can write about how I like to stay in bed all day on Saturday. They can write about anything that they want to write about. And all you have to do is capture them once. Just get their attention. And then from that one point, you can expand and say, well, how about, are you interested in this too? And they're like, well, maybe, maybe not. But they're more <laughs> open to being interested in those things once yeah. you show some interest in them. A lot of my students stay in touch with me. I mean, for years, I have you know, some of them who are now 40 years old, older than you, who are still, wow. still in touch with me. And I've started a company and the company is basically all my former students who are now in their 30s, 40s, and they just want to be in touch, which is, I, I'm really <laughs> impressed. I, I must tell you, this is kind of like the best thing of all for being a teacher, you know. Yeah, the students really want to be in touch with you. Yeah, the leg your legacy is like uh, out there in the world, just spreading and like. Right, the class that was talking about the shoes was an English class that I was teaching. But you know, in social studies, you can do a lot of the same things. I mean, actually, it's even easier because I taught social studies. So, like, what what's happening in the world right now that is making you the most angry can you tell me about mm. it or what is making you the happiest yeah, yeah. or you know and then put them together in groups and let them talk to each other i'm not kidding they never will want to leave your class <laughs> <laughs> 
yep, yep. Start from whatever they're passionate about, what gets them just going uh, yeah, for right. some, on something. So if you have a kid that is really, you know, depressed, depression means basically you're not interested in anything and you gave up. Usually it's that kid that has, like I said, everything that they've tried before has been rejected. They're like, oh, that's not a good yeah. idea. So just try saying yes once in a while. <laughs> Teenagers are the most creative people on the planet. You just need to appreciate that. And the parents need to remember they are creative and their desire is really independence. And now we're going to listen to a piece from the interview with Jonah Berger. Let's hear what he has to say about dealing with children who do things that we wish they weren't doing and therefore how to deal with the dilemma that is born when we do not want to sound authoritarian, but at the same time, we don't want them to keep doing these things that might be damaging them. I think the challenge here as parents is sometimes you say, well, hold on, I don't want my kids to do drugs at all, Right. And if they're smoking pot frequently, and I say, you know, rather than smoking pot once a day, smoke pot once every two days, they're still smoking pot. I don't want to smoke any pot. That's fine. Yeah, right. But that's focused on what you want rather than where they are. And I think one big message of this book, right, is we have to start with them. We have to start with where the people we're trying to change are, understand them, understand where they are in their journey, and use that to help us, right? And in the, in the pot example or in the doctor example, if you ask for too much, they'll ignore you. Start by asking for less and then ask for more, right? I'm not saying stop with only two liters of Mountain Dew a day. I'm saying right. use that, start moving in the right direction. Yeah. Like sometimes people call this stepping stones, right? You take a big change, you break it up into smaller chunks. If there's a river, right? Um, and you ask someone to ford the river, they say, no way, it's too far across. There's no way I'm going to make it. Okay, if you say, I want to break it up into stepping stones, jump from this stone to the next stone to the next stone, takes a little bit longer, but people are much more likely to make it to the other side. And so the same thing with your kids, right? Don't start by asking for everything. Don't start by asking to for, for too much. Start by asking for less. Move them in the right direction. Chunk that change into smaller chunks, and eventually they'll be more likely to get there. And it also strikes me that this is similar to why there's evidence that advocating complete abstinence from sex is not that effective. Um, and parents who just adopt the approach of saying, don't have sex till you're married, never have sex, it doesn't work. Their kids don't comply with this and actually are more likely to have teenage pregnancies compared to parents who are more realistic and talk about safe sex and talk about pleasure and being able to advocate for yourself and all these other things. And because as a parent, we don't want to feel like we're advocating sex. We don't want to feel like we're saying, hey, go out and have lots of sex. So we put ourselves in this place of saying, no, don't do that. Um, and with all of these behaviors, you know, we don't want to feel like we're saying, oh yeah, um, it's okay to vape, you know, so we feel like we need to take the hard line approach and say, no drinking, no vaping, no sex, no drugs, don't do any of these things ever, terrible. Um, but when we do, then we're jumping into this problem of we're, we're in their region of rejection. We're too far away from maybe where their mentality is right now that it's not actually helping at all. Yeah. And look, I mean, I want to be very clear. Different parents are different, right? What you're okay with as a parent may be different than what someone else is okay with as a parent. But I think the most important thing is that you have clear, honest communications with your children um, and allow them to make these decisions themselves, right? Because if the only reason they're not smoking or having sex is because they think you want them um, to do those things, um, that's not going to be as helpful as if you get them to figure out what they want for themselves yeah. um, and instill that set of values. And if the only reason your kid is cleaning their room is because they don't want to be punished. As soon as you stop punishing them, they're going to leave their room and be a mess. They're going to go to college and their room's going to be a mess because you're not around to clean up with them after, every day, right? And so the question is not, how can you get someone to do something because you told them to? The question is, how can you get them to come up with their own value system that helps get them to what you think is a good place? And so, you know, imagine having the following conversation with your kids. Um, you know, they're going out on a date. You say, hey, what do you want? Mm. What do you want? What are you comfortable with? What are, you know, what are things that you want to get out of this? What are things you're okay with? And is there anything you're not okay with? Okay, if there's something you're not okay with um, and it moves in that direction, what what might make you feel comfortable to do this too, but, but encourage them to have that conversation with themselves, yeah. right? What's so interesting about questions is if someone asks you a question, you have to think, 
If someone tells you what to do, you don't have to think at all. You don't have to come up with your own ideas. You don't have to internalize it. You don't have to figure out what you feel. All you have to do is tell them, yes or no, I'm going to do what you think. Whereas if someone asks you what you think, then you have to say, well, hold on. What do I think? What do I want? What am I comfortable with? Maybe it's not having sex. Maybe it is having sex. Maybe it's only having sex under these situations. Um, You know, maybe it's waiting until this thing. But then if I've articulated for that for myself, now when I'm outside the house and I'm, you know, at someone else's house and something comes up and you're not there, right, I'm going to be much more comfortable going ahead with what I've thought about because I've thought about it. I've thought about what I'm comfortable with, not just what you've told me to do or not, but what I'm comfortable with. And it's going to make me much more likely to stick with it. And so guiding that conversation, not forcing it, but guiding will make it much more likely to reach a, a good outcome. Michael Kimmel is now going to tell us how a parent can use sport as a tool to start the conversation with their child. I went to a game um, with my wife and uh, one of my best friends and Zachary and we were, and it turned out it was like Mickey Mantle anniversary appreciation day. And Billy Crystal was at Yankee Stadium and all these, you know, and they had all these players and, you know, widows and all these guys around me are, oh, Mickey's the greatest. And, you know, and, 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 and my wife is going, who said men don't cry? Like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Try watching Field of Dreams without crying. Right? Yeah. You know, that is a male weepy. It's unbelievable. And, but, you know, there's something wonderful about this. I was sitting at, at Yankee Stadium with my son. And I guess he was about 10. And A-Rod hit a home run. And I said, Zachary, you're going to remember that. You watched A-Rod hit a home run. And I said, you know, when I was your age, I was sitting here with my dad. And I watched, and Mickey Mantle hit a home run. And he hit it. And I, and I said to him, he hit it right over there. I can still remember that. Yeah. So Zachary and I are, t- are sitting there with that, holding that moment. And a guy from behind, the, in the row behind us, leans over, taps Zachary on the shoulder. And Zachary turns around and he says, I was sitting here with my father and I saw Babe Ruth in a home run right there. <laughs> and it was like, you know, there was something wonderful in that moment that was something just moving to us sitting in that place of fathers and sons and grandfather, you know, that the sort of the, the timelessness of sport to men. I think there's something lovely in that. And I don't want to, you know, just throw it all away. I think there's, and I think, and I think it's usable because it was an, if it was an important part of our lives and we share that with our, with our sons, it gives us a foundation to talk about other things. And now we're listening to Ilyasa Shabazz, who's going to tell us how important it is to control the narrative that is taught to our children. I think when we look at our education curriculum, right, I think that it's important to learn to control the narrative. We can't just sit back and think that someone else is going to do something for us, right? right? And so that, again, being participants in the laws and policies, being critical thinkers. Because it's so easy just as a student to think whatever information you're being given is just that's what it is. And to not question, well, why is this what we're learning and why is this what we're being taught and what else are we not not seeing or not thinking about? For example, when we look at slavery, right, we don't say that they were indigenous, African, American uh, people who were held in bondage psychologically terrorized, right? We don't, we don't see it that way because we just kind of dismiss it as, oh, oh yeah, th- that was slavery, right? But I think when you control the narrative that you know, we are grateful to these early Americans who were held in bondage against their will, terrorized. However, they made a significant contribution they cultivated the land. They made a contribution to our American culture, right? And had it not been for them, 
we would not have this great opportunity to call the United States of America our home. And so it's giving honor to all of those early founders, those early foreparents. I'm grateful that both of my parents, Malcolm and Betty, challenged systemic racism and understood the importance of our education curriculum to be based on historical facts so that, for example, each of us understands that African-American history is American history, right? And that American history is also Hispanic history and Native American history and Asian history. And that when we think, you know, in terms of what happened, you know, in slavery, what happened after slavery, about the massacres of Black Wall Street in Tulsa and in Rosewood, for example, in our high school U.S. history classes to be as American as the Boston Tea Party, then more of us would understand the necessity for reparations, right? We'd have an opportunity to provide a value system without teaching our children hate and racism and discrimination. And rather, we have an opportunity to teach love and respect, you know, to provide a value system of truth, honesty, and human compassion. And I think this is what controlling the narrative looks like. And, and these are the kinds of activities that I utilize in my courses. And now let's listen to a segment from the interview with Peter Lobenheim. Let's hear what he has to say about insecure and avoidant attachment styles and the benefits that they might have. There was a very interesting Israeli study done a few years ago yeah. where they brought a group of people into a laboratory and they had a computer set up that was pre-programmed to start smoking at a particular moment, like it was going to burst into the <laughs> okay. right? But the But the participants didn't know this. So this group of like 10 people are put in a room with a computer. Sure enough, the computer starts smoking. <laughs> But beforehand, the researchers had learned the attachment styles of all the people in the room. Okay, yeah. So in this study, they found that the people who detected the smoke first were those with an insecure, anxious attachment. Yeah. Because they're more attuned to threats. Yeah. One of the things they're good at. And the people in the room who were the first to find the exit and get out were the people with the avoidant attachments because they're more inclined to independent, self-reliant action. Yeah. And it's a good illustration how even with these insecure attachments, if we understand them, they do have their advantages and we can direct our teens to take advantage of those things. Yeah, I think it's important. And I like that because it's kind of about working with the things that your teenager is naturally drawn towards and good at. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about strengths and focusing on strengths. And sometimes we just have the urge to fight that, I think, as parents or to, you know, think that it's our job yeah. to push them in, uh, against what they naturally kind of are drawn to. Grace is now going to tell us how vulnerability and transparency are key elements in any conversation with our children. One thing I've done with my kids is I have a free pass. And that basically means like you can come to me with anything that happened, anything someone else said, anything someone else did, doesn't matter, and you won't be in trouble. All you have to do is say, Mom, I need to tell you something and I need to know I'm not going to be in trouble for this. Yeah. And a lot of parents, I think, have a really hard time with that because like, what if it was something really bad? What if they need to be in trouble? But what yeah. that's done is it's increased the chances that they will tell and involve me. And so when I told my kids this, they both were like, oh, thank goodness. No matter what's going to happen, I have one place that I can take this free pass out and I can yeah. come to my mom. And so for me, that's been really important. And I frame that with like, look, I know what it was like to be navigating this stuff and feel like if I went to my parents, I was just going to be in trouble. And I want to be the one giving you my thoughts on this stuff, but 
I know that's not going to happen if you don't feel like you can trust me to hold your confidence. You know, if somebody comes in like, I went over to so-and-so's house and they were drinking and I'm immediately on the phone with their mom and say, your kids were drinking and my kids told me and then their whole relationship is ruined and, you know, their reputation yeah. is at risk and they're not going to ever come to me again. So, so I kind of framed it like that with them. And that's something that works for me. Obviously people can take that or leave that. But for me, it's like really means, and it means that my son comes to me with some things you wouldn't believe. And I tell my friends like, oh my gosh, he came to me about this video that him and his friends were watching and it was totally inappropriate. And like, he didn't know what all these words mm. meant. And he called me at midnight from wow. his friend's house, from the condo that they were at. He called me from the bathroom to ask me. And he knew that was because he wouldn't get in trouble. And now he has information that's actually true. And I answer all his questions rather than either having to guess at it or having to find out things that aren't true from his friends. And I get to put like my slant on it. I think another thing about the vulnerability though is really just being human. So, you know, talking really honestly about the first time you drank. Did you like, you know, the first time I drank was um, I was 12 and it was, we were in like a hot tub and someone passed around what I thought was orange juice and it had vodka in it. And I was like, who ruined the orange juice? And it was horrible. <laughs> tasting. And, um, you know, like the first time you got drunk, like just have, like tell them your experiences and yeah. say, do you have any questions? Like, this is going to happen. Like, I'd like to be here for you. I know that me just telling you what to do, it's going to fall on totally deaf ears. You know, talk to them about, are you curious how hangover feels like? Do you want to know why you actually, people get sick when they're drinking? People get sick when they're drinking because it saves their lives. Let's think about that for a minute. Like the reason that somebody throws up when they're drinking isn't because they're, you know, so cool because they're like, it's, it's because their body's saying, hey, we're going to die unless we get this out of your system. stuff you're putting it's into me right now it's it's got to get out it's not good we can't no <laughs> yeah. and so i would talk to them about all that sort of stuff in this way that as much as your personal experience you can share the better or if it's not mm -hmm. your personal experience share a very close friend or family member that you know about you know and maybe you don't have to name them but when you start to talk to your kid in my opinion as a real person they start to respond as a real person and they would be so much more interested in what you have to say. And I mean, my goal for parenting is that I want the rapport with my kids, no matter what the whole world looks like, maybe I look like I'm too tolerant, maybe I look like I never get my kids in trouble, whatever. But my goal with my kids is that they trust me enough to come to me first. Yeah. My goal is rapport above all things. Because if I know first. that no matter what's happening, they can come to me, then I know that I even have a chance of influence. Because I know what happened for me, I moved out of my house at 15 years old because I was like, forget these people. This doesn't even yeah. make sense. I'm going to go move in with my boyfriend. Right. And they didn't have any rapport with me. And so they weren't who I went to for stuff. You know, now that I'm 40, I go to my parents for advice. Right. But it's because yeah. we have a relationship. People don't go to the people they don't trust. And so that's, that's my goal. And it's just recognizing the really stark reality that all the rules in the world don't take the place of a relationship. Don't take the place. And the relationship, 100% of the time, relationships human to human are built on vulnerability. That is what builds relationships. Thanks for listening to the Talking to Teens podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, you can always reach me by email, andy at talkingtoteens.com. We'll see you next time.